Good morning. It's Pentecost Sunday and um, no surprises that we're just going to have a look at uh, a couple of uh, verses or a few verses from uh, Acts chapter 1 and then Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, I do encourage you, bring your Bibles uh, in whatever form, whether it's paper form or if you've got them on your phones or just bring them along on a Sunday so that you can uh, read with us. Um, I'm going to read a few verses here from um, Acts chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 9, and then chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Into chapter 2 now, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Well, if you know your Bibles, and I, you know what comes next. That um, The story continues that the crowds hearing these Galileans speaking in their own uh, dialects, uh, speaking about the wonders and the fantastic things that they were saying about God, thought that some of them were drunk. And uh, Peter put some right on that and saying that it's nine o'clock in the morning, that's not so. Um, and then he preaches to the crowd. This is Peter, who was uh, the one without any courage, the one who uh, denied Jesus before those in the courtyard. And uh, he preaches to the crowd with a new Holy Spirit empowerment. And uh, we read of 3,000 becoming Christians, followers of Jesus, that day. Shall we just pray for a moment? Lord, this morning we just pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, sensitive hearts, and also willing spirits to respond to whatever you reveal to us this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see on screen, uh, this morning is our final instalment in our series entitled Legacy. As we've been saying over a number of weeks now, <clears throat> when the word legacy is mentioned, many people think uh, almost immediately in terms of money or property or material possessions that are left by someone in their will for someone else. And uh, once we agree that is a, an understanding of the term legacy, we have been looking and focusing on another kind of legacy, a legacy which is far more important than that. And we've seen that it's not what we leave for others that really matters, 
but what we leave in them that matters most. And over the last uh, five weeks or so, we've explored the lives of some of the great heroes of the Christian faith, men and women who have lived and died, some of them hundreds of years ago, and yet their lives, when they lived, they left a legacy, and their lives uh, affect our lives today. We had a look at the three Williams, uh, William Tyndale, Carey, and Wilberforce, and then uh, Martin went on and had a look at someone who was still alive, uh, Philip Yancey, and then uh, Dan with Maria Cristina Gomez. And uh, through this teaching series, um, we've honoured the past, but we're also embracing the future by inviting their lives to challenge our lives today. Uh, our focus this morning is going to be on this gentleman, George Jeffries, uh, the founder of the Elim Pentecostal churches. And he was regarded as the greatest evangelist in the UK since the days of uh, John Wesley. And since it's Pentecost Sunday today, I felt that uh, to have a study on uh, George Jeffries was even more uh, important and more relevant. Before I jump into his life, uh, I think it's quite important to know a little bit about the background and what was going on at the end of the 19th century in Victorian times. It seems as if that, at that time the church had become quite comfortable, complacent even. Uh, many within the Western church had become self-satisfied and respectable and indifferent and also irrelevant. But God was beginning at that time to shake his church again and a new day was dawning. And during this time, towards the end of the 19th century, Christians throughout the world were crying out for a new Pentecost, for God to do something new, for Christian revival to come. There seemed to be a renewed appetite for God to, to move once again powerfully. And the Western church at this time was looking out beyond its own boundaries to other nations too. Growing numbers of uh, believers became convinced that unless God came powerfully to empower his church, then there was no hope for them reaching the world. And women and men, they cried out to God to move once again, just as he did on that day of Pentecost that I was reading about just a few moments ago. And the prayers were heard and answered. And on the 3rd of January in 1901, at Bethel Bible School on Topeka, uh, Kansas, 12 students from that school were filled with the Holy Spirit in a way which we read of in Acts chapter 2 in our Bibles on the day of Pentecost. And these students were, were praying in shifts, three hours a day, 24 hours, uh, sorry, three hours each, 24 hours a day. And it just seemed that this time there was a new era that was dawning. And then in 1904-1905, those years I'm sure are known to many of you um, because they were the years of the very famous Welsh Revival. In, and it started in a chapel in a place on the outskirts of Swansea called Lacha um, in Moriah Chapel. And uh, a revival started there in 1904 which brought a hundred thousand people to come to know Jesus Christ 
and uh, absolutely amazing. And some of the th things that we read of in, there in the history books um, is like reading Acts all over again. There were many remarkable conversions. The communities were touched by God's power. A very famous Christian by the name of Watchman Nee, a Chinese Christian who was also a great writer, spoke of the Welsh revival in 1904 and 05 as the greatest revival ever known in church history. Amazing impact, not only in Wales, but throughout many countries of the world. Shortly after this, are you still with me? Shortly after this, 1904, 1905, well, 1906, there was the famous Azusa Street Los Angeles revival. And there was a young black preacher named William Seymour. And he led meetings there. William Seymour was a one-eyed uh, son of former slaves. I know it's a wonderful irony there, isn't it? You know, having a one-eyed man called Seymour. <laughs> you know, that seems <laughs> very unfortunate, isn't it? But I didn't write this stuff, okay? Um, in fact, uh, William Seymour had been locked out of his local church for preaching about the Holy Spirit's power. Fancy that. And the only building that he could rent was a tumble-down shack Initially a Methodist church which had been destroyed by fire and was then being used as a livery uh, stable. And this building in Azusa Street became famous. Famous all throughout the world. Church leaders, missionaries from around the world came to it. And it was in this tumble-down shack, this livery stable, that men and women met God and the fire of God spread throughout the world. They just caught something, God's presence. Don't you love it? When God uses the weak and the foolish things of this world to stun and amaze the mighty. Here, a son of former slaves in a livery stable that had been partly destroyed by fire to attract people from all over the world. What was so special about that place? Well, what was so special about that place was that God was there. And that's the way that God often works. You know, think of the first Christmas, not in a palace, but in a stable. No dignitaries, no world leaders, no celebrities, but simple shepherds and Eastern mystics. And that's the way that God so often works. And then from Azusa Street, Los Angeles, the fire of God spread to other parts of the world, including the United Kingdom. The Reverend Alexander Boddy, an Anglican vicar, I'll put a photograph of him up on screen there. Anglican vicar of All Saints Church in uh, Sunderland. He had contact with this Welsh revival and it touched him very deeply. But then he heard of other things happening, that there was an outbreak of the Spirit of God moving in mighty ways in Oslo, Norway, under the ministry of a, a Cornishman, a Cornish Methodist by the name of Thomas Barrett. So he went over to see what, he was, uh, what this was all about, and he said there were scenes like he had only seen in the Welsh Revival, which were absolutely astonishing. So he invited Thomas Barrett back to his home church, this Anglican church in Sunderland, uh, to speak. And this became the center of renewal in the United Kingdom and a special place of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. There's actually still a plaque on the wall of All Saints Church in Sunderland. You can go there today and see this. Uh, oh, that's the, the church, by the way. 
And uh, this is the plaque. It says, September 1907, when the fire of the Lord fell, it burned up the debt. Wow. <laughs> Such was the deep spiritual impact that the sp of the Spirit's work in people's lives that it affected their pockets. And you can always tell when a person has been touched by the Holy Spirit, it releases their grip on money. People become more big-hearted and less tight-fisted. And what I'm doing here, by the way, is only, only the tip of 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 the iceberg of what was happening. But one thing that you could say was sure, that God was on the move. And it wasn't just a local outpouring of the Spirit, but it was worldwide. There was a whole generation of, of young Christian leaders who were deeply affected by this, this move of God. And one of those people was George Jeffries. And he was born in a small Welsh mining town in the Thinvy Valley called Mystig. Is, is Janet Malice here this morning? Janet. Well, Janet's from uh, Mystig. And she can tell you that's a hometown. She can tell you all about the wonders of this mining village town called Mystig. Won't take her long, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, she. <laughs> but that's where George Jeffries was converted in the Welsh Revival, 1904, age 15. He and his brother Stephen had been deeply affected and empowered by the Holy Spirit, much in the way that the early disciples that we read of in Acts had been empowered to take the gospel far and wide. And as a young man, he became a very popular preacher and um, in this fledgling Pentecostal movement, much in demand. And on the 7th of January, uh, 1915, a small group of men and women um, invited him to speak at some meetings in Monaghan in Ireland. And um, the Ely movement, to which this church belongs and to which of, of which you are a part, that was birthed in those meetings on the 7th of January 1915. And these young men and women, although they look quite old because of the style of dress and so on, some of them were barely out of their teens. Most of them were uneducated and untrained and they stepped out in faith. And as they did so, they saw God move mightily in their lives. They didn't, by the way, uh, set out to start a new denomination, Elim Pentecostal churches or Assemblies of God or Apostolic churches. The truth of the matter was that they got thrown out of their old traditional churches because they were far too enthusiastic. <laughs> their old traditional churches couldn't cope with the new passion that they had. Can you imagine that? Getting thrown out of your church because you're far too enthusiastic and too much on, in love with Jesus. Wow. <laughs> it was really a, a little bit of... Um, what Jesus spoke about, you know, the new wine and the old wineskins. Yes, there was new wine here and there was certainly the old wineskins of traditional um, um, denominations. But actually, that's another story I haven't got time to tell you this morning. God poured out his spirit on many of the traditional uh, uh, congregations as well sometime later in the charismatic movement in the 1960s. But I, I really don't have time to tell you about that this morning. God blessed their ministry. God blessed the ministry of people becoming Christians. There were many people filled with the Spirit, many people healed. 
And the stories are, are really, really quite awesome. Shall I tell you some of them? Would, would you like to hear some of these stories? Um, I, I'm glad you said yes, because I'm going to anyway, <laughs> firstly. Uh, <laughs> but secondly, I think it's a good answer, because these are really, really, really inspiring. In 1923, Tamworth Elium Church, our church, was started by George Jeffries and his band of workers, uh, which means we're going to celebrate our 100th anniversary in just four years' time. I did some research this week and I got an old copy of an Elim Evangel, which was the news sheet which was uh, given once a month to all of the, the early Elim churches. And this was dated, I don't know if you can see that, November 1923. And it's a fascinating account of how this church got started way back then, uh, in the autumn of 1923. In what they called the portable tabernacle. Well, to you and me, a tent, okay? And this tent came into the town and they held meetings there. And there were some quite amazing things that were happening, that uh, people were healed, people were, uh, came to faith. And they were there for a number of weeks. And on the last week, from the Wednesday to the, the final night on the Monday, George Jeffries spoke. And on the last night, he baptised 22 people. And then the following month, another 12 were baptised and Tamworth Elim Church was born. It's good to know a little bit about your history, isn't it? Um, but over the next few years, there were incredible things happening. By 1928, there were 70 churches that had been established. Two years later, 1930, there were 100 churches. Three years after that, 1933, there were 153 churches. You can imagine this sense of faith and People coming to know Jesus and uh, the, the growth. And um, as you all know, I have very strong links in South Wales. I became a Christian in our sister church in Swansea and uh, pastored in a church in Cardiff, in an Elim church in Cardiff for a number of years. Well, in 1929, George Jeffries uh, returned to his native uh, Wales. And he began meetings in Cardiff. He got the biggest hall in Cardiff at the time. It doesn't exist these days, the Corey Hall. It holds simply thousands of people. And uh, he booked it to hold some meetings there. And, and the meetings continued. Not that he planned this, but they continued for 51 nights. And in total, attracting 150,000 people with 3,000 converts. Exact same number we're reading in Acts chapter 2. An elder, when I became, when I was a young pastor and I started in that church in Cardiff, uh, I was in my late 20s, but one of our elders was a guy in his 70s and he told me a great story of his own mother that on one of these occasions when she was herself quite a young woman, um, she was wheeled in her wheelchair, she was a disabled lady, and she was taken to these meetings uh, at the start there with George Jeffries and the, uh, the meetings that they had in the Corey Hall. And she was healed. And she walked home herself, pushing her own wheelchair. And that was from an eyewitness who it was his own mother. But after Cardiff, these, uh, there were other meetings in Swansea. And these uh, continued for six weeks and saw another 2,000 people coming to faith. And there's one particular story that I want to share with you. It's a story of a man called Glyn Thomas. 
It's a very, very old photograph of him there, a very grainy photograph. A remarkable healing. Uh, Glynn was, was a man with a terrible hunchback, suffered from severe epilepsy as well. And he was a man who sold newspapers in the city centre. Well, a city centre, it was a town in those days. Um, everyone knew Glynn. And he came along to one of these meetings and he was completely healed. Later he became, uh, well, a Christian and then became a church minister. Some years later he told his story and this is what he said. Before any human hands were laid on me, I felt two hands which could have been none other than the hands of my blessed Saviour placed upon my back. And there before that great crowd, that which doctors failed to do for, for 20 years, the Lord Jesus Christ did with one touch. The hump instantly disappeared and my bones were placed in the right position. The coat which I was wearing hung in folds upon my back. At that time, God delivered me from epileptic fits. Now, stories like that are just incredible, aren't they? Very, very impactful. And I say, Lord, do it again. Please, Lord, do it again. We need you to move, Lord. We really do. The following year, um, this group of uh, young, well, I suppose you could say uh, evangelists, missionaries, they came to Birmingham. And uh, that was perhaps the most successful of all the times that they had. They came to Birmingham and uh, there were 10,000 people converted in 1930 in Birmingham. 1,100 were baptised and 1,000 were healed. And in the six years from that time, uh, 11 Elim churches were started in Birmingham. Now really there's quite an inauspicious start really, isn't it, you know, in Ireland, but Elim churches today, we have 550 in the UK and Ireland, and we are linked, associated with 9,000 worldwide with missionaries in over 40 countries of the world. Uh, churches that range from just a handful of people. So as we are meeting here in Tamworth this morning, in some places, there may be six or seven people meeting. And then that goes all the way up to our largest church of uh, 15,000 people in Kensington. Also at the turn of the 20th century, or since then rather, to now, those who would call themselves Pentecostal Christians around the world, numbers, 550 million. Astonishing, isn't it? Right, I think I'll sit down for a rest now. That's a lot of history. Sorry, I've just thought I've gone boom. But isn't it good to know our roots? And to know and be excited and inspired as well about the way that God has moved. And it's good, I think, to honour those in the past who have passed the batons on to us. And we have a great legacy. But I have absolutely no desire at all to hold on to the past, to live in the past. Our story is an inspiring story. That is the Elim story. Tamworth Elim story is an inspiring story. Do I thank God for it? You bet I do. But that was then. I want us to keep in step with the Spirit in all that the Spirit is doing in our day, to honour the past, and to embrace the future. I think most of you know that Julie and I have uh, written a book recently. Many of you have got that book, 
Grace and Glory, which is essentially the story of our church here in Tamworth over the last quarter of a century or so. And, um, you know, for those, and thank you for your, your kind comments as well. Many people have said of how inspiring the stories are, and they are inspiring. God is on the move and we see God's grace at work, but we also see imperfect faith, absolutely, in his pages. But you know what? I don't want to stay in the pages of this book. I do not want to stay in the pages of this book. There are 23 chapters in here, but I'm looking forward to chapter 24 and 25 and 28 and 37 and 59 and 100 and whatever. You see? I have no idea what those chapters might look like. God does. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So what is it then? Our series is called Legacy. So what is the legacy of George Jeffries and the other founding fathers of the Elim churches? And I've been thinking about that a lot over the last few days. Were they examples of sinless perfection? No, absolutely not. They were made of the same stuff as us. George Jeffries, this great man of faith who was used by God to do so much in the UK and further afield, some years later, in 1939, broke away from Elim and broke away from the movement that he had helped start. And he started teaching some strange concoction of views, which I won't bore you with the details. But in a sense, he was like so many of the characters that we read in this book. Isn't it wonderful when you read the Bible that we read people, warts and all, as they are, Wrinkles stay as wrinkles. And freckles and zits are not airbrushed away in this book. You know, just think of the men and women in the pages of the Bible. People that God used so much. They were far from perfect. George Jeffries was far from perfect. You know, I'm not saying this morning, all hail this man. Absolutely not. But he was a man, imperfect as he was, he was used by God. And as I look at my own imperfections, and you do as well, I'm sure, you know, say, thank you, God, for your grace. Someone passed this on to me some time ago. I'm not sure where I got it from, but uh, there's a list of those who were imperfect in the Scriptures, yet people who God used. And the list goes, Moses, well, he stuttered. John Mark was unreliable. Hosea married a prostitute. Amos only had experience as a fig tree pruner. Jacob was a liar. David had an affair. Solomon had 700 wives, not including 300 concubines. Imagine that, 700 mothers-in-law. <laughs> Abraham was a pensioner, and he had been for 35 years. Timothy had ulcers. Paul was ugly. <laughs> Peter was a coward. Lazarus was dead. John was self-righteous. Naomi was a widow. Jonah was disobedient. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon and Thomas were doubters, and for that matter, so was John the Baptist. Jeremiah was suicidal. Elijah suffered from depression. Paul was a murderer. So was Moses. So was David. John the Baptist dressed funny. Martha was a warrior. Samson needed a haircut. <laughs> Noah had a drink problem. Moses had a short fuse. Zacchaeus was short. And if there are any young people left in here this morning... God used David when he was only a teenager and so was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and so was Daniel, and so were many others too. And I just thank God 
that he uses weak and foolish people. Those people who get it wrong, those people who make mistakes, those people who sometimes have pretty bad theology. People like you and me who require the grace of God. And aren't you glad? George wasn't perfect, but there was so much that we can learn from him and the forefathers. And let me just uh, suggest three things. There are many others, I'm sure. Put them on screen for you. Firstly, they were men and women of the Spirit. <coughs> Secondly, they had a passion for lost people. And thirdly, they, have, they had a boldness that is not often seen today. I love reading history. Never used to, but I do. And when I read history, I, 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 I sort of get to grips with some of these great people who have lived before us. And I'm thinking, oh my word, Lord, their lives are such a challenge to my own. And as I've been filling my head this week full of uh, our church history of over 100 years, um, I've just been amazed and inspired at these people. They were men and women of the Spirit. They had a passion for lost people. And they had a boldness which is not often seen today. You see... Being a person of the Spirit and having a passion for lost people are really two sides of the same coin. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, in fact, his last words before he ascended, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice that, and I'm sure you've seen this before, that the Holy Spirit's power and being witnesses for him, they're two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate that which God has placed together. And when you think of what happened following the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given to the disciples, they were just changed. They were changed forever. The disciples who previously met in locked doors, they ran away from confrontation. They were just changed in courageous men and women who had a passion for telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the earliest disciples and also our founding fathers had a reliance on the Holy Spirit that I, actually, that I, that I think actually deeply challenges our lives, my life, today. Read Acts. Read Acts again. I always try to read Acts maybe once a year. And you will read of the Holy Spirit directing the steps of those, those early Christians, opening up doors of mission, enabling them to heal the sick, empowering them to take the Christian message to places right around the Roman Empire which were hostile to the Christian message. Today is Pentecost Sunday. We are a Pentecostal church that believes to, belongs to a Pentecostal denomination. But what distinguishes a Pentecostal believer, or that matter, what marks out a Pentecostal church? I remember asking my life group a few years back that question. What makes a Pentecostal church? What makes a, a Pentecostal Christian? And we had a great discussion on it. I had some really interesting feedback. Someone said that uh, aren't Pentecostals those who speak in tongues and the church where spiritual gifts are in operation and tongues and prophecy and prayer for healing. And someone else said, well, surely it's about the type of worship 
It's spontaneous, it's less liturgical, it's not the hymn sandwich, it's more unprompted. Someone else spoke about the openness of the Spirit when we gather together, all good stuff. But as our conversation developed in that life group, we came to the conclusion that a Pentecostal believer or church is one, quite simply, who relies in the Holy Spirit. That personal church recognises the Spirit's presence and power as indispensable to their Christianity. You see, the Holy Spirit is not some optional extra. Like, you know, in your car you might have air conditioning or a good sound system. It's not an optional extra. It's the equivalent of the engine. And I was saying to someone just the other day that um, just as Christ, you know, you, you can't have Christianity without Christ. You can't have Christianity either without the Holy Spirit. Because all we'll be doing is trying to live our lives in our own strength and ability and then tripping over ourselves and not being able to do it. The Holy Spirit is the power that is given to us in order for us to live a life which is honouring to Christ in our world. You see, being a Pentecostal means that reliance. Monday to Saturday as well as on a Sunday. doesn't mean that we live in clouds and uh, always on some kind of spiritual high. Some of us, you know, the stuff that we have to contend with in life is sometimes pretty tough, isn't it? Really, really tough going. But it does mean that through the tough times and through the messiness of life, as well as on the, the great times, the good times, that we lean heavily on the Holy Spirit and we can know his power and wisdom and his strength come what may. I don't know about you, but I sometimes get this wrong. I sometimes forget that God has given me his spirit, his empowering, his enabling presence to serve his purpose in this world. And instead, I tend to, on times, go into that spiritual battle, into the fight that we've been singing about this morning, armed with my spiritual pea shooter. When the same power that conquered the grave, what? Lives in me. It's a great song, isn't it? I just wish that we would all take that song and make it a part of our lives every single day of the week to apply those scriptural truths. And that's taken straight out of Romans chapter 8. You see, I believe it's possible to be a Pentecostal without being a Pentecostal. Some of you are looking at me. What, what, what's he on? What's he talking about? Let me explain that. I think it's possible to be a Pentecostal with a capital P. That is, we belong to a Pentecostal church that belongs to a Pentecostal movement. We're not Anglicans. We're not Methodists. We're not Baptists. We're not Roman Catholics. But not actually be Pentecostal, small p. Because we really, truly don't have that relationship and openness and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Let me cut to the chase here. I believe that God wants his children everywhere to be Pentecostal. That is Pentecostal with a small p. I, don't want, I, I can't imagine God wanting all of his children wanting to join a Pentecostal church. I think the church that we are a part of, the worldwide church, is wonderful, don't you? Yeah. 
I glory in it. I thank God for it. It's diversity. You know, if they were all like us, it would be boring. Absolutely boring. But no, a small p that he desires. He has given us this gift on the birthday of the church, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit. And yet sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, we try to live this Christian life out. And it's a hard slog. And maybe it's such a hard slog because we have not employed the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us and on our behalf. We don't yield to him in our lives. So what does it mean to rely on the work and the person of the Holy Spirit? Maybe we need to be people who are quick to recognise our own inadequacy and weaknesses and also swift to recognise that God has given us the Spirit who is a guide, a comforter, a counsellor, a help, our strength, our sufficiency, the one who empowers us to live lives for him in this world. He is also our seal and our guarantee of eternity. So much more I could say on this. But we choose in this church to honour the past, but also to embrace the, the future. We don't live in the past, but we can learn from it. We can be encouraged by it. We can be inspired by it. God has not changed, thank God. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. He is the same. The God who has moved in astonishing ways and outpouring his spirit and blessing his church in revival, whether it's the Welsh revival or Azusa Street and all the other times that God has met with his people. He is the same God that we worship today. He is a God who is both the ancient of days and also the one who makes all things new. I just love telling those, uh, those stories of yesteryear. I find them thrilling, really do. But my desire, <laughs> I, I just pray that you are in the same place as me here. My desire is to see those things in our day too. Not just to be confined to the, the pages of history. Time's gone. Let me just finish with one verse. One verse which is hidden away in the second book of the Bible. You might not have come across this. It's in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. And it says, Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. You may say, well, Steve, what's that all about? I think that is an incredibly profound verse. You see, the nation of Egypt was indebted to Joseph, you know, the guy who coat of many colours, for the way that he saved them from famine. We all know the story of Joseph, I'm sure. He was the hero. Um, Pharaoh put him as prime minister, put him as number two. They applauded him. He was wonderful. But then they forgot about him. 400 years later, there were... There was, a new, there was a new king in power in Egypt and they forgot all that they owed him and enslaved his descendants. And we are living in an age which has really cut loose from its Christian heritage. It's lost sight of the amazing and wonderful changes that has been made in society through people like Elizabeth Fry, 
with the prison reforms. William Wilberforce that we looked at a few weeks ago in his anti-slavery bills. Lord Shaftesbury, Thomas Bernardo, George Muller, whose work with the poor and the disenfranchised is, is utterly amazing. And maybe the people that we have heard about this morning, people like William Seymour, Alexander Boddy, Thomas Barrett, George and Stephen Jeffries, and many others who have laid foundations, courageously took God at his word, and were obedient instruments of God in their day. And they have passed on to us batons to run with what they had. We hold them a great debt. Let's not be like the, the new king who came to power in Egypt and knew nothing of Joseph. Let's not lose sight of the legacy which they have got for us. It's a privilege and it's a challenge, really, to walk in their footsteps. They were instruments in their own generation for God to use. They were people of the Spirit. They were people who had a, lost, who had a passion for lost people. And they were also incredibly bold and courageous. And my prayer this morning is for me, and it's for you, that we might just capture something of their lives for today. Guys, would you like to come back? Would you stand, please? Let us just pray together. And maybe we can just pray that for ourselves today.